Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello. You're listening to Episode 7 of Leadership in Extraordinary Times. I'm Peter Tufano, the Dean of the University of Oxford's Said Business School. In this episode, we're looking at marketing and advertising through and beyond COVID-19. How do we best tread the fine line between opportunity and opportunism when promoting brands during the crisis? To discuss this and more, we've brought together a panel of marketing leaders from the Oxford Future of Marketing Initiative. Martin Etherington is the Chief Marketing Officer of enterprise technology firm Teradata. Julie Coleman is Global Head of Insights at Moet Hennessy part of the luxury conglomerate LVMH. And Seth Rogen is an associate fellow and CEO of Magnolia Media Partners. Chairing the discussion is Professor Andrew Stephen, L'Oreal Professor of Marketing and Associate Dean of Research here at Said Business School. Martin joins us from San Diego, Seth from New York, and Andrew and Julie are dialing in from the UK. Together, they'll share their insights into how to steer brands through the pandemic including why now is not the time to cut marketing budgets, how authenticity is the key to success, and how brands offering help for the right reasons will be rewarded. They'll be drawing on lessons from the past, including marketing in the wake of 9-11, as well as looking forward to future recovery. But first, Andrew Stephen kicks off the discussion with what leaders need to be thinking about now as we weather this crisis. Last night, actually, I was, I was thumbing through my, my Twitter feed and I saw a tweet from Mark Reed, the CEO of WPP, who, who we all know. And, and he said, and I'm going to quote this, shopping, paying cash, business meetings, art auctions, exercise classes, doctor's consultations, school lessons, they're all moving online. It's hard to think of an activity that is not, all of which means a lot of innovation ahead of us. You know, I think pretty uh, insightful words and I think it's something we've all been thinking about. Um, Julie, let's, let's come to you first, and, and I'm curious what your reaction is and, and what you're seeing sort of in consumer markets with respect to these changes we, we've, we've gone through. Well, I think the one thing that Martin missed out, which is obviously important to us, is the degree to which socializing has had to move online. And who would have thought that we would all be getting together at six o'clock to have a drink together on Zoom? Who would have thought my grandmother would know how to use Zoom? Um, <laughs> You know, the only way that we've been able to keep in touch during lockdown is through technology and through digital means. And that's something that's completely new, literally for most consumers. I know we live in a bubble where we think it's normal, but for a lot of consumers, living their life online is absolutely not normal. And I think what's important, I mean, we all know that we're now shopping, we're online, we know we're going to the doctor, we're doing our lessons, et cetera. I think what's important to think about in terms of how will this affect behavior in the future is what are the benefits people are getting from this new digital life, their new life online. And there are so many of them, it's more convenient, it saves time, they have access to things that they wouldn't normally have access to, they can get in touch with people they normally wouldn't be able to see. There are so many benefits that I think that this this really does represent a fundamental transformation of how we live our lives, how we're going to live our lives in the future. I think thinking about in terms of that sort of 
value equation um, in terms of benefits is actually really interesting. If, if I think about, well, do I get more value out of doing it now, how I'm doing it versus how I used to do it? That probably is going to influence how, how people think. Maybe, maybe not as explicitly, but, but you know, at, at some level, thinking, think as they return to whatever consumer life um, becomes after all of this. And we'll, we'll get to that in more concrete terms. But, but first, Martin, how about on the sort of the, the business to business and, and enterprise side of things? What are you seeing that's changed? I would say I concur with the statement, but I would say a sort of contrarian but. Um, I think there will be a but which says, um, I want to get back to the physical side of things. And I think there will be a tremendous, the back end of the year, people wanting to go out and actually have the physical interaction again. And um, certainly hearing from my teams that they love the working from home part, but they are missing that human interaction, that human engagement. Um, so I would concur all of those good things. There will be, we've changed the way I'm working. I've even changed the way that I think about working from home. Um, I must admit, I wasn't a huge proponent, having done it before, and I've been probably a big advocate of bringing more people into the office when I first joined. But I think I've actually even changed my point of view about the, uh, the effectiveness of, um, of how people are starting to work from home. And the productivity is just huge. So this afternoon, I'm going down to, um, uh, to San Paolo and also to... Um, to Chicago in one day. So, I mean, it's just different ways of working. I think we'll adapt to that, but I think there will be a slingshot approach at the end of the, end of the year and people will want to get back together again. And, and just to follow up on that though, with, with, with respect to Teradata, specifically in companies like Teradata, where your, your customers are, you know, some of the, the, the biggest companies on the planet, how, how has this been changing the nature of, of those relationships and those interactions with, with your big customers because it's different to just us you know as consumers going and you know buying more stuff on amazon obviously so so that personal aspect that's normally very important in relationships at, at that level is different now so can you sort of tell us a little bit more how that's playing out yeah particularly for us um where we have a lot of uh, i mean most of our deal sizes are in the 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 tens of millions of dollars. So this is not an add to shopping cart, although it would be great if it was. So it's a very, very consultative led selling. So we've actually transitioned everything we've done physically to virtually. We've done that really in the last uh, three weeks. So we had something called uh, Answers the World Tour. It's really a hands-on experience using Vantage, our uh, flagship data analytics platform. To taking that to virtual. So we can now, we've now used um, digital technologies and we're now bringing that to, to market um, in May. So whereas before we could, we could touch hundreds of people, we can now touch thousands of people. We've now got an executive briefing center, which is just a tremendous experience for our customers to come in and experience what we can do to help solve their most critical data and analytics problems. We've now taken that online. We've already got nine major brands signed up to attend these in the last two weeks virtually. So we've just transitioned um, very, very quickly uh, to get into that virtual world. And also what we're doing is changing the way that we think about communicating content. So we've turned into, we've got now a publisher's mindset with content, and now we're becoming broadcasters. I mean, this is a great example of we're becoming broadcasters ourselves. And that's what we're doing here at Teradata to make sure we can convey the content to the right people at the right time with the right message 
but do so now with a different medium. So it's a good segue actually to you, Seth. So speaking of publishers, speaking of broadcasters, media as an industry, what, what are you hearing with respect to what's going on now in, in those businesses where in essence, yeah, every, every company is now inundating us with broadcasts, um, but, but there's also a lot more time spent maybe watching traditional broadcasts as well as other sources of media. So what's, what's your take on this at, at the moment? Right, I think as consumers right now, if we're not guzzling Julie's products, we're guzzling media products right now. No, no offense, Julie. On the, uh, I, I know I'm doing my share on both. And I think, you know, the important thing is that in some ways the media business was built for this ahead of time. When I read Mark's tweet uh, as saying that everything is going virtual, it led me ask, to ask the question, is this the dawning of the age of agoraphobia, right? Are, are we really about to be this locked inside culture? And I don't think we are. And I think um, as marketers, we're very good at telling ourselves stories, which is uh, always leads off with whatever we're doing right now is about to be extremely correct for the infinite future. And <laughs> I, I don't think that's necessarily so. Um, I think where, to Julie's point, where there is value uh, for the consumer, and whether that's a B2B consumer or, or, or an actual B2C consumer, um, those things will become more virtual. But there are certain things, let's be clear, that, that matter about inhuman contact. Um, and some of what Mark brought up about being a cashless society has real impacts for the poor. It has uh, real impacts for supply chains. It, and it has real impacts as marketers and as media companies for the kinds of talent we're looking for moving forward. If you were hiring, and I, of course, come from a news and journalism background, as you were saying before, Andrew, if you were hiring a journalist 30 years ago, you were probably hiring uh, for somebody who had this great network and would pound the street all day and write you a couple of paragraphs and get that in on time. And now that journalist has to be someone who is a videographer with their own phone, can edit video on the fly, can back that up with B-roll and audio, get all of that in so that we can consume it because we are voraciously hungry for content right now. And I think we're seeing that from brands as well because if you read the results of some of the big public companies on the, the, uh, the platform side of the last 48 hours, they're saying they saw a blip and then advertisers have really come back in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so just what actions are brands taking uh, in response to this crisis? And the question is, is, is basically about cutting budgets. I, I'm sure you're going to say it's not a good idea to do that, but, but, but why? Um, in a time when, you know, employees and unfortunately being either furloughed or, or laid off, unemployment is on the rise. Um, should brands still be spending on, on marketing and particularly advertising activity? Or is there something else they should be putting those resources into? Um, I, uh, Julie, let, let's go to you first. But I'm curious to hear what, what all three of you think about this. I think it's a qualified yes. They should still invest in their brands for, for a couple of different reasons. One is that you know, we know from the WPP's Brand Z work that through the, through the 2008 crisis, strong brands recovered nine times faster than brands that didn't have strong equity. And so, you know, if you're a company that's beholden to your shareholders to deliver a return on the business, and frankly, if you want to have enough cash to keep running your business, you have a, you have a, a duty to keep your brand strong. Now, having said that, do you put all of your, do you put everything into, into advertising? No, there are lots of ways, lots of things you need to do to keep mm -hmm. your brand strong which includes in a crisis like this, consumers absolutely expect companies to behave responsibly. They expect companies to, number one, in all of the surveys I've read, and there are a lot of them out there, um, number one, protect your employees, 
Number two, give back to communities that are being hurt by this crisis. Number three, don't sell to me and don't take advantage of the situation. Um, but number four, keep communicating. And so I think companies do need to continue to invest in their brands. I do think, and you know, if we think about the actions you take today are gonna have consequences for three or four years. So if you completely cut off advertising for your brand now and damage your equity, reduce your salience and reduce your relevance, um, you're gonna spend three or four years trying to get that back. And that's gonna involve a level of investment next year that you're not gonna be able to support. So companies really need to think, think carefully about the degree to which they cut now and what the implications will be for the future. It's, yeah, you mentioned the brand Z. I mean, we, we did a, a Future Proof podcast episode with, with Kanta about a week or so ago where they were sort of simulating out the effects of advertising budget cuts on brand equity. Um, and basically, if you cut it all, you're going to take a, a sort of a double-digit hit to brand equity. Um, but if you cut only, say, half, then, which is still a pretty significant budget cut, you're, you're only going to take a single-digit cut uh, or hit rather to, to brand equity. Uh, and therefore, recovery is going to be faster, or at least the opportunity to recover is faster. So I think there's good evidence to suggest that, you know, in times of crisis, don't turn the lights off for lots of reasons. Martin, what, what, what's your take on this from the, the enterprise perspective, where marketing is more complex in some sense as well? There's, there are two aspects of our business. You've got, the, um, you've got the industries such as travel, hospitality, and many other industries where, where the markets have literally just gone away. 30, 40, 50, even 70% of the market's just, just gone away. And they're hurting. So we've got to show up and we've got to make sure that we stand by those customers during that time. And I think also there's, there's other parts of our business that are just growing. Um, and we've also made, made sure we're, we're there for, for them too. So I think from our customer's perspective, we've got to be very, very thoughtful about how we reprioritize our segments and our targeting, number one. Number two is, I absolutely concur, particularly publicly traded companies such as Teradata have to deliver shareholder value. Now, there's going to be impact to our business. It's really how do we dynamically resource allocate? So for us, we've, we've really literally shut down all of our physical events the rest of the year. And we're dynamically resource allocating the dollars for that to really move forward for uh, virtual, digital. And then we're actually going to thinking about opening up advertising again, probably mid to late August or summer, because we believe that there's actually the right thing to do. And then also, I think there's going to be deals to be had. We may be advertising in places where we could never afford. So I think that that's going to be um, the top of the mind. But you do so in making sure that you do so with the brand authenticity. And I think during this time, I love Warren Buffett's phrase, which he says, you'll discover who's been skinny dipping when the tide goes out. And I think for brands... <laughs> People will be judged upon the way that they show up Absolutely. and the way that they act during this crisis. And I think it's for us as a brand, um, particularly ours, is about transforming the way the businesses work and people live through the power of data. We are absolutely focused on being socially responsible and being there for our customers and, and doing things for our customers that we wouldn't normally do in an all time. I believe that those brands who can do that authentically will be rewarded um, as we move forward. I think Martin's, can I just add in? I think Martin's making a good point that applies to consumers as well, because not every consumer is experiencing this crisis in the same way. I mean, we have a stark example within the Moet Hennessy business of we have consumers 
who are very ultra, you know, who are ultra high net worth individuals and, and are willing to spend thousands of dollars on a bottle of cognac, for example. And we have consumers who are normal everyday Americans who many of whom have lost their jobs. Um, and so how we respond to those, you know, they're having a completely different experience of this pandemic um, and how we respond and communicate with them. We have to be really careful um, in everything we say and do because we're, we have two very different audiences. And those and audiences are particularly sensitive, right? I mean, there's a, there's a very fine line that's there. I think Martin tapped into it exactly, which is that the message has to be authentic. Yeah. That it isn't just, right, Julie, uh, okay, um, we know we're in a moment of crisis and we want to sell a product. And I know that's certainly not the way any of us would go about it. And I feel like there's this perilous distance, which is the line between opportunity and opportunism that is probably in an inverse proportion to the size of the crisis, yeah. right? So the, the deeper the crisis, the thinner that razor's edge becomes, because we've all seen campaigns right now, and we can see people doing it wrong right now. Uh, saying, if you buy this product, we will donate something. And there is inevitably a social media backlash that says, why wouldn't you donate already? Yeah. Right? Why wouldn't you actually step up? You don't need my three bucks to yeah. step up and do that. And so I think we have learned because unfortunately we've been in a, uh, a period of the last 20 years of building crises that have led us to this point, hopefully to be wiser about it. But there are still brands doing it so wrong today that we all wince when we see it. And the ones that are authentic, I think, will, will truly win. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Seth, I want, I want to come to you, though, because, you know, you, you said there have been other, you know, crisis moments where um, all sorts of industries, including our industries, have, have had to adapt. But you, you were at the New York Times um, in the advertising business during 9-11 and, and rebuilding after that. So I know that seems you... impossible because I look 15, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> Yes, that youthful appearance. But, but you, I'm sure there are, there are lessons that we can learn. I mean, that's one example of, of, of a past crisis. But, but you know, what, what, what happened then in terms of, of the, the advertising I mean, business? The, the, the time after 9-11, unfortunately, has to be uh, uh, in, in the midst of the deep grief. And by the way, I'm talking to you right now from my home one block away from World Trade. I've been a New Yorker and a Manhattanite for I'm a New Yorker my entire life, a Manhattanite for as long as I can stand on my own. And uh, um, literally, if I took you outside the window, you would see the new World Trade Tower right now, one block away. Um, and having lived through that and been at the New York Times through anthrax, anthrax attacks and the like, we were all very extremely sensitive, obviously, after that moment, as anyone would be. And yet the worst ads and marketing campaigns came out after that time because people didn't understand how to do this. And I remember being at the Times and we had an ad that ran only two or three days after the attack that said uh, something from a furniture store, something like we mourn the over 2000 dead and dinette sets are 699 this week. And they were not the only one. Um, there, was, there was a famous ad uh, uh, from a Belgian uh, humor magazine that said their magazine was so distracting that if pilots were reading it, they would have crashed into the towers. Um, that ran, and you can see all these ads online right now if you look that up. Um, um, and then there was, of course, the most infamous one, which was tying the tsunami, the Indian Ocean tsunami, to 9-11 uh, from the World Wildlife Fund that just had the greatest of intentions, but the worst of creative. And I won't name the agency, they were well maligned for it, they're a global agency, um, saying that if more planes had flown into the trade towers, it would be close to the loss of the tsunami. Comparing crises, comparing these things always fails. 
asking people to step up to do what you want, what you want yourself to do, meaning to give charitably always fails. Stopping and saying though, and I think there's a great example out there of someone doing it right right now, Andrew, which is uh, the ads that are running, I believe globally from Frito-Lay, uh, where they're actually stopping and saying, we're not gonna show our logo, we're not gonna show our product, we just wanted you to know we're stepping up and giving back, and here are five charitable efforts that we are doing, thank you. And then their, their, their logo runs for maybe a second at the end of the, of the TV spot or the digital video spot, and that's it. And I think the more brands that act that way, bravo to them, that's, those are the ones that we're gonna remember. And we always remember the best and the worst. Unfortunately, we, we usually remember the worst, as I just did, more than anything else. But we can remember the great campaigns that came out of times of crisis, like the red campaign during the times of, of the, the worst of the HIV crisis. Um, there are ways to do this right. And I think learning from our history, plus matching with the technology of new platforms, uh, is really is the, 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 the calculus for success. So and I think the new platforms, which you mentioned, is important because that also allows companies to respond much more quickly. We're much more agile today than we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And consumers have, have a massive expectation of the speed of response, not just the authenticity of the response, um, which, which is quite interesting. I also think that companies are much better positioned to respond more appropriately today than we were 10 years ago, simply because the idea of corporate social responsibility has become so important and so ingrained in most large companies that they actually have people with the sensitivity and the um, understanding of, of you know, what kinds of responses can actually have the greatest impact and, and what kinds of responses are most closely linked to the brand or company DNA. I think we're better positioned to respond appropriately today than we have been. We're gonna move now from the importance of prioritizing social responsibility to questions around digital competence. Will the current crisis refocus our attention to marketing automation? Digital transformation may have been accelerated by the lockdown, but in what ways is it smart? Here are Martin Etherington's thoughts on that. If you weren't making the digital transformation um, already, then you can be found out. I think, um, so we, we started from a marketing perspective on that journey before I joined Teradata two years ago. And we've just really accelerated that in these past two years. And that's about making sure we provide the best digital experience for our customers, period. Um, we wanna be the uh, center of gravity for everything, all data and analytics. Um, so I think we, we began that journey. I think um, brands have, have been on the journey of um, being digitally branded very, very long ago. And the one thing that um, this has really accelerated, uh, the, the gaps internally is um, digital competence. Really, the, there's no difference now between digital marketing. It really is just marketing. And I think this is going to accelerate our um, doubling down and investing on digitally competent um, teams. And we're already kicked that off. We've, we're um, hiring for about eight or, or 10 people now in the digital uh, area to accelerate our uh, move to digital from a marketing perspective. And we're um, embarking upon training, internal training of our uh, existing employees sharpening their skills. So I think this has really heightened and accelerated the appetite for change. And uh, certainly for us, um, it's really convinced us to really accelerate, put our foot down on the accelerator and really take the investments we were doing in physical and putting them into uh, the digital space. Yeah, it's not dissimilar to the point you're making about sort of views on working from home changing, 
team structures. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the other point I had is actually in seeing that's at side business school as well with our teams is we've been forced to become more agile uh, around digital and, and using that for broadcasts such as this and all sorts of forms of digital content and marketing. You know, people are having to kind of learn skills and, and, and update their skills maybe on the fly. But it's also, I think, giving people some confidence to realize, oh, okay, we can do this stuff. And maybe it's not perfect to begin with, but we'll, we'll learn and we'll get there. And, and it's, it's been this sort of positive impetus for, for change. So I think a big part of that sort of accelerated transformation is in part giving people, I mean, sometimes you need, you need a reason to, to go and try something new and different. And this has certainly given that reason. Um, and uh, you see people actually gaining a lot of confidence in, in new skills that they're acquiring. So I think that's, that's a positive. And then this question is, how do you then take that and, and extend it even further beyond? Um, so let's talk about beyond. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I find, you know, myself in meetings with, with colleagues and, you know, we're talking about, oh, well, when this, when this is over or when we go back to normal and then someone sort of nervously chuckles, oh, you mean the new normal? And then no one really knows what we're talking about. And we don't obviously have a crystal ball, but it, it would make sense for us to think of the context of, of, of marketing, what, what this new normal is, is potentially going to look like, or, or maybe more practically speaking, what, what marketers need to be thinking about as we advance into that new normal so that we, we see it and can adapt accordingly. So Seth, maybe you'd like to start. Sure, in terms of what marketers are going to be thinking about as we come out, I mean, I think there's a moment here of, as I was talking before about the line between opportunity and opportunism, there is a moment of great opportunity here, both from the crisis that we're all facing and the innovation that we're seeing, but also the financial crisis that is ensuing around it and seems to be fluctuating day by day. If you look back at the, the financial crises of generations before, that is, has been the, the point of genesis for some of the greatest brands. And it's been those brands that have doubled down during that time authentically on what they are, uh, what they stood for, and just delivered quality at a valuable price. If you look back, I mean, GE started during the financial panic of 1873. Disney started uh, uh, just before the Great Depression, as did the New Yorker magazine. Uh, HP, Hewlett Packard started before the Depression. Microsoft started during the, the, the downturn in 1975 and on and on. But then you also see great legitimate brands that had already existed that used the moment to actually be of service to their customers and build their business. So if you look at something like um, Kellogg during the moment of the Great Depression, uh, they were by far a secondary brand, but they wound up investing more and lowering their prices by saying to the consumer, we want to be more on your radar. We want to advertise a bit more, but we're also going to reduce our price because we know we're going, you're going through a tough time. And in doing that, they demonstrated a, a genuineness of spirit and of listening to the consumer. And I think if there's any lesson during this time, it's that we don't yet have the answers, but that they will come from listening to these consumers. And it's why Julia, as a head of insight, is in this amazing role right now, not only because she has a product that's in high demand, but also because that demand is evolving with our, our state of being consumers, how much we leave our homes, how much we want to order in versus going out, how much our ability is to buy that product, as she was saying. And so I actually see this while we, have, of course, have to digest the challenge of it. There is a real business opportunity here for the people who do it right. 
So Julie, I, th- I think I think we have to come to you next since Seth teed it up. But um, so, but what 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 I mean in, in in your industry, what are you from from an insights perspective into consumers? I mean, is it too early to be charting out what that new normal might look like in terms of drinks occasions and so on, or or what what are you working on at the moment with respect to that? You know, if any insights person tells you they can predict the future, then you probably shouldn't hire them, <laughs> in my view. <laughs> So we don't talk about being able to say, this is what the new normal is going to be. We don't try to tell, I'm I'm not trying to tell the business that I know exactly what's going to happen in the future. The one thing, in fact, I just completed about an hour ago, my kind of overall summary of everything that we're seeing and what direction does that look like it's going to go in there for what are the implications for Moet Hennessy. And I think, and, and my conclusion from all of that is that actually what this has done, what this crisis has done is it has simply accelerated the pace of trends we've been seeing for five years. We've, you know, more and more things have been moving online. It's just now it moved every, you know, it all went in six weeks instead of another three years. The one big trend I think that's had a massive thruster put under it is people's attention to climate change and sustainability and environmental issues. Because people in cities who can now breathe the air because we're not driving everywhere and there aren't five billion planes flying over every day are suddenly realizing, oh my goodness, maybe human activity does contribute to climate change and maybe we can do something about it. And so I think sustainability, particularly around climate change, but I also think around waste and packaging and the desire for more locally produced products and support for local businesses is going to be probably the biggest outcome of this whole event uh, of anything. And I think a third big trend is in this area of um, the broader area of trust, consumers are going to have a hard time for the next six months trusting, trusting strangers in a crowded situation, trusting businesses, you know, restaurants and supermarkets, et cetera, to be as sanitary and hygienic, um, trusting food company or food products that are being imported from countries that had a worse outbreak than, than their country did. I think trust is going to become a much more sensitive topic over the next six to nine months. And to Seth's point though, this is the opportunity for a company to step up and build its credentials and build its trust with its consumer base. And they will be able to reap the benefits of that for a long time moving forward. So, so let, let's, let's talk about actually the, the concept of um, or what the action of green recovery, because uh, a number of questions have sort of been talking about this in one way or another around purpose, sustainability, responsibility, and, and you know, you brought it up and it's come up a couple of times already. And so we know that, you know, earlier this month, um, there was the, you know, the launch of the European Alliance um, for a Green Recovery with lots and lots of companies uh, joining that. Um, I, I don't know if there's something similar in the United States, although maybe um, Seth or Martin could, could enlighten me. But, but I also think at the, at the same time that a lot of that momentum we had around particularly climate, but, but the broader sense of, of corporate purpose and, and multiple stakeholders and, and, and all of those themes, which are, as you all know, are very uh, important to us at, at Said. Um, we had a lot of momentum and now this has come and been a distraction. So the spirit of the idea of a green recovery is, is excellent, but how do we make sure that that happens? And I, and I do mean it in sort of in, in practical terms. I mean, Julie, you sort of talked about things like packaging and supporting local businesses and so on. I'm kind of curious why else um, we, we might need to be thinking about, say, from the marketing and, and the customer side with that. So, so Martin, if you, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. And I think uh, Julie uses the word trust. And I think we're already in the post-trust era coming into this with the fake news, etc. And you're even doing a session, Andrew, 
um, based upon that. I think right now, I think people are, um, are recognizing there, there's distrust with, um, with some of the media outlets. Um, so I think trust is gonna be a real critical part of this. And I go back to this word authenticity. Those brands that are authentic and compassionate throughout this are the ones that are gonna shine. And I think there are other things that are going on, not just on the climate side. So for instance, um, 100 um, or so companies in the US have formed something called the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition. And that's really helping people solve this problem with technology innovation for us. We're um, giving up data scientists and our technology platforms, and we're doing so with our competition. And this has actually brought the industry together to do, do good versus looking good. And I think this, this, this really notion of being authentic to your brand, but doing so for the betterment of uh, mankind, it sounds very lofty and a little bit sort of uh, kumbaya, but I'm seeing this, just the human spirit running around and I've seen the collaboration somewhere with our competitors I've never seen before. And I think this is the time that the brands will be measured upon what they do versus what they say and, and not putting big brands up in on NASDAQ saying, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're in it with you. And those hollow, hollow weasel words. It's really the, the authenticity and how do you win back trust in this post-trust era? So we, we talk about authentic action to win back that trust. How I want to, but, but Seth, I mean, you, you have, you know, you always have great quotes. And one of them that you used before was you know, there's a fine line between, you know, opportunistic and opportunity, uh, if I'm quoting you correctly. So, so how do we take that action that Martin's talking about, sort of that authentic uh, pro-social action, instead of just, you know, saying we're, we're here with you, but rather we're doing something good. And actually, Julie, your parent company, for example, in terms of LVMH shifting production to hand sanitizer and L'Oreal and others have done that as well. Yeah. But how do you tell people so that you sort of get credit for that um, without going overboard and, and looking like we're just saying, oh, look, aren't we wonderful? With, yeah. you know, how, how do you do it, Seth? I think you just did it, right? It's <laughs> that people who act with, and I think are earning to Julie's great word, the credentials of trust, are seeing those messages go out in more than the normal standard ways of paid marketing. They're coming out in social. They're coming out uh, um, in terms of news coverage where the news is looking for the bright lights because there's only so much grimness they can portray um, and keep people uh, uh, without getting fully morose while they're watching. And so companies that are canning water instead of beer and companies that are, that are providing sanitizer and the like, I think are doing exactly the right thing. I'm very proud of an organization I was on the board of for many years called the Ad Council here in the US that immediately stepped into action within about 48 hours after the announcement, working with the White House uh, to actually get out information to say, you know, here's what shelter in place means, here's what it means to protect yourself, to wash your hands and the like, and to donate millions upon millions of dollars of media, as I know are, is happening in organizations that are similar around the world. I think that's where it's very important. To Martin's point about a green recovery, I don't know of a similar organization in the US, but I will say, I think probably what we need here, rather than only a green recovery, is a recovery that stops the anti-intellectualism that has stopped our, our country from growing for a while, where people don't necessarily want to know what's true or they want to decide what's fake news and what isn't. Um, you have people being told by the most senior powers that they should drink cleaners 
Um, and therefore, they're worried about what is true and what isn't and who they can trust. And in some ways, it's coming out that they can trust these brands more than they can trust their own elected leadership. And what a strange time to be in when the brands are commercial entities and are, are, are being paid to, uh, to persuade them. And so I think there's a very unusual moment happening, not just in the U.S., but around the world, which is to reorganize who we trust. Um, and to get a sense of where our priorities are as a society. You know, crises reveal the weaknesses and strengths within societies, but also within businesses. And I think we've revealed in the media side a great strength, which is we're already connected to people within their homes. We're already connected in terms of the way that we deliver the marketing, we deliver the journalism to people when their homes are on their devices, wherever they are around the world. Now, how do we work together with brands to make sure that that message is being conveyed. And I wanna see it happen, not just on the legacy properties, but on the new properties. What's being done to tell the viewers of TikTok that they need to be washing their hands? And there are campaigns doing it, right? There was one that came out of Korea that was brilliant. So how do we challenge ourselves as marketers, as storytellers to use the newest technology to do that? Also keeping in mind that not all of our data is as valuable today as it was yesterday, since our behaviors are changing as we go. But I think trust goes beyond just doing good during the crisis. Um, I think that's, that's absolutely what has to happen today so that you don't completely lose trust. But I think there, you know, in terms of the recovery, we need to keep trust foremost in our mind. And trust, trust comes from the consumer, your consumer feeling like you really understand what they want and you're honestly trying to do your best to deliver to them. Trust means not giving them a product that's not safe or not good or not worth the money you're charging for it. Trust means lots of different things besides just saying we're going to donate some stuff during the crisis. And I think and I hope that companies will continue to think about, you know, why they why they did what they did during the crisis and extend that thinking into the future, because that's how you're going to create the strongest relationship and strongest bond with your consumers. So I'll just go down the panel one more time with, with any sort of last thoughts for the last couple of minutes we've got and, uh, and then we will we'll close. Julie? I would just say the most important thing you can do right now and for the near future, well, actually forever, is listen to your consumers. Don't listen to the news. Don't listen to what's, don't only focus on what's happening on social media because social media doesn't represent your full consumer base. Listen to your consumers and think about why they're doing what they're doing and what benefit, what's the value equation for why they've decided to do something differently. And that will give you the direction you need um, to figure out what you should do next. Martin. Yeah, I would, con I would convey uh, authenticity of your brand, uh, compassion, stress, social responsibility. And I'll just close uh, my, my session with a quote from, uh, from Winston Churchill, who says, uh, we shall not be judged by the criticisms of our opponents, but the consequences of our acts. And I think that stands true for brands today as well. And Seth. Uh, it's a moment for reckoning. It's a moment for reinvention. And I know which side of that I'd prefer. My thanks to Seth Rogan, Julie Coleman, Martin Etherington, and Andrew Stephen. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Take a moment now to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about the Leadership in Extraordinary Times series, please visit OxfordAnswers.org.